Hey everybody, this is Joshua Heston. And I'm Lisa Martin. And this is the Dark Ozarks on the Branson Podcast Network. We're an exploration of everything that's dark in history, mysteries, the paranormal, and everything else. We explore the noir, the unknown, cryptozoology, UFOs, paranormal, and all the dark stuff that happens in the Ozarks. You can find Dark Ozarks on Branson Podcast Network on Facebook under Dark Ozarks, as well as our YouTube channel, Dark Ozarks. We'll leave no stone unturned to bring you the dark history, mysteries, and legends of the Ozarks. Welcome to the Dark Ozarks. We are discussing the dark history of the Lake of the Ozarks. But first, we want to remind you that the Dark Ozarks podcast is now available on Branson Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or about any other podcast platform. So is the history and lore of the Lake of the Ozarks as noir as a certain TV show with a certain name? I would say the fiction doesn't have anything on the real story. From gangsters before there was a mafia, bloody feuds, murder, not to mention tales of monster hauntings and more, the Ozarks does not disappoint in its rich stories, and Hollywood cannot beat those stories that we have right here. We will return to the Lake of the Ozarks, but first we want to invite you to like, follow, and subscribe to Dark Ozarks on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, as well as your favorite podcast platform. We also invite you to become a Dark Ozarks subscriber on Facebook. On the Dark Ozarks Facebook page, click subscribe, have your login information ready, and join Dark Ozarks behind the scenes for only $4.99 per month. Your $4.99 per month subscription allows you to come with us on paranormal investigations, deep dive research, and topics too controversial for public view. The next 100 subscribers will be entered in a drawing for a free Dark Ozarks t-shirt and an exclusive signed first-run copy of the book, Dark Ozarks, The Spook Light. Subscribe today on Facebook to be entered in the drawing. And now you can get Dark Ozarks t-shirts for sale at darkozarts.com and paranormalsciencelab.com. We encourage you to check out Always Buying Books in Joplin, Missouri, in person and online, on Facebook and at the website, alwaysbuyingbooks.com for all of your reading needs, including a large section on the paranormal, history, and more. Not to mention, the building is haunted. Tell Bob and Elise that we sent you. We also want to thank Beard Engine Brewing Company in Alba, Missouri. Beard Engine Brewing is the only English-style brewery in Missouri and has been twice named Missouri's best brewery by the Missouri Brewers Association. Great beer and great food in a historical building with a noir past. And yes, their building is also haunted. Tell Nate and Tip that we sent you. Really good stuff. And looking forward to making it back to Alba. Looking forward to making it for myself. I know you're you're there on a regular basis. Looking forward to making it back to always buying books. Yeah, I'll have to get you there before too long. Mm-hmm. Possibly next week. We've got a couple of episodes coming out dealing, of course, tonight with the Lake of the Ozarks area, but we really should do just a brief shout out and thanks to the good folks in Lebanon. Yes, uh, that was a lot of fun. I guess that was two two weeks ago. just, Just under two weeks ago. We got to go up and visit with folks and talk about noir history and the paranormal in Lebanon, Missouri at the library. A wonderful facility. And they also house the Route 66 Museum there. So it's something that 
is fun for everyone to check out. Lots of things to explore and to take home. A wonderful gift shop too. So, and I can't wait to go back. Uh, same and honestly, one not to not to belabor the point too much, but one of the coolest gift shops that I've been in in a long time. The curation process for that gift shop is phenomenal. Yes, very very well done, and hats off to them. So the Lebanon, Missouri area, it's on Old Route 66, modern day I-44. And then as you begin to look at north of Lebanon, you start rapidly getting into Lake of the Ozarks territory. You do. And, you know, as soon as you get really just north of Lebanon, you start getting into Camden County, Camdenton, and on north. I do think it's interesting because we're talking about Lake of the Ozarks. There's a dichotomy here with the history before there really is a before and after because the lake is not a natural lake. It is an impoundment from the 1930s, I believe, and late 1930s, if, if I recall. And so a lot of places have changed. Mm-hmm. A lot of places have been created or moved. And Laura's grown up around the lake, the lake itself. Very interesting. But one of the more fascinating stories I find is one that I really wasn't aware of until fairly recently and has sort of kind of almost gone under the radar, I think, as the lake grew up and it became a tourist area. This is a chapter that was kind of forgotten. It really was. It really was. And taking, you know, transitioning back, the uh, we're going to talk about sort of the south side of the, of the lake. I think we're talking, I'm assuming we're, we're talking about the Phantom of the Ozarks. Yes. And location-wise would be Hahatanka State Park. Yeah. yeah. Hahatanka over toward Lebanon. And this, is, to me, just the, the region itself, this isn't, an exceptionally beautiful space of the Ozarks. There's a lot of rolling farmland that is a very different kind of Ozarks than say like the Boston Mountains in Mm -hmm. in Arkansas. But it is a, a space that is punctuated with these extraordinary ridges, these extraordinary rock formations, these extraordinary vistas of the deep valleys deep wide valleys and it's a very evocative land i'm always always impressed and excited to get to drive through it and or even within the periphery of it to me the the space itself really harkens memory back to a to a much older time and at the same time it's easy if you're not thinking about those things and you're not really tuned into some of that history to be very blasé about it, you can be like, oh, okay, it's farmland and it's a, it's a small town, it's this, it's that. No, there are layers and layers of extraordinary things. We're gonna dig into a lot of those tonight that really call in unique ways. And one of the things I love about episodes like this, you drive through a small town and you think, wow, what? I wonder what sort of things happened at these crossroads in the past. And, and oftentimes, 
the people living within that town, many cases don't even know. No, often they don't, I find. And, and, this, and, is, this, and this is one that really fits that bill because so much of the events that the Phantom of the Ozarks was involved with, even more broadly, getting into the Slicker Wars and everything, is fairly well forgotten as well. It is. And we're, we're really dealing with such an early point in Missouri history. Missouri becomes a state in 1821. This is during the 1830s. So beginning just approximately nine years after Missouri becomes a state. And it is centered in essentially the Lebanon to Hahatonka space. And we're dealing with a man named John Avey. He's an early settler, or presumably is an early settler. And he ultimately ends up with the moniker Phantom of the Ozarks, not because he's a phantom, or certainly wasn't at the time, but because of his illegal business dealings. Yes, and he was so hard to find and track down. He, he was very elusive in, in, in some senses. He was quite the entrepreneur of criminal activity during that time period. He, he did a lot of different things and took advantage of circumstances. Some of those were the, the land itself, that it was sparsely populated, and that he could kind of come and go and vanish very quickly between caves and valleys etc so then, i mean oh uh, go ahead i was gonna say apparently from his demeanor he really first of all he appeared to be brilliant mm -hmm. that's I, I think a very important aspect and second of all his overall demeanor and the way he presented himself was according to the documentation that he was very soft-spoken very benign in appearance he was not somebody who got people's attention. And that's a good way to orchestrate various criminal organizations. And that's basically what he did before there were terms for that. This is way before the mafia or organized crime of any sort, really. But he had very extensive networks of people involved in everything from horse thievery to counterfeiting and everything in between well and again just the intelligence and the the strategy and the structure involved the the sense that he had developed these loyal trusted men that surrounded him that acted as his eyes that he was to a large degree up until later in his career extremely successful at infiltration getting men who we can assume at the beginning, these men that he was employing were also quite intelligent and getting them in positions of, uh, of influence or positions of intelligence in the sense that they were placed where they could relay information effectively. Yes, and also influence over judges and political figures. I mean, it, it really sounds like Tammany Hall 50, 70 years before Tammany Hall. And we're, we're also dealing with complex network of men who, in addition to apparently being quite good at their work in, in terms of infiltration and intelligence gathering, also happen to be 
quote unquote, murderers, robbers, thieves, swindlers, manipulators, and extortionists. So we are we are dealing with organized crime 10 years after the foundation of the state itself and in the middle of the frontier at that time. Yes. And, you know, some sources have even likened it to almost being a shadow government itself, being that well organized. And to the point that, and you will find various sources referencing his counterfeiting operation as associated with the Bank of Niangua. And people might think it's related to the town of that name, but it's not. And it wasn't a bank. It was a counterfeiting operation that he set up in the caves around Haha Taka Spring. While if you go to the park and you're observing the beautiful landscape and spring, etc., 200 years, well, 190 years ago, they were counterfeiting money. And not only were they counterfeiting money, it was being spread clear across the country. This was not a local operation. This was a far-flung operation that was supplying counterfeit money even to the East Coast. It's the, the, the aspects of this, I think, are a little hard to wrap your head around considering how quote-unquote primitive early settlement was and then to see this going on and realize mm, how, how sophisticated these elements were exactly one thought that i i I had while while we were doing the research and i'm curious your thoughts we have so many treasure stories and counterfeiting stories in the ozarks i do have to wonder if some of those are sort of transplanted or transmuted boat tails from the Bank of Niangua. That's a really good thought. That is that is very, very interesting. I obviously we, we need to be doing more research, but I think it's well worth our time to to look at that because the Bank of Niangua. So okay, so something that is really fascinating to me is what I would what I would classify as almost lost memories. Mm-hmm. Something that that happened, and in a, in an era before internet data, in, in you know before Wikipedia, before all of these things, something like this happening, there would have been small newspaper articles in varying locations, but not everybody has access to the same newspaper. Those types of things. Then you have. Unfortunately, some of those newspaper articles were preserved, but most people did not preserve their copy of the newspaper. And so it means that I'm now going to quote Lord of the Rings, the film, not the book. History becomes legend, legend becomes myth. That's, I mean, there is that aspect to it. I, I agree. And further, not only were they counterfeiting currency, paper currency, they were minting coins, even counterfeiting Mexican currency. So 
now we start getting into tales of Spanish gold, Spanish silver. That's a very good point. You know, even you know, even the various stories about Yoakum dollars and everything, you really have to wonder if some of these have gotten confused and mixed up with the Bank of Niangua. It is very fascinating. Now, an, an addition to this that I, I think is worthy of note for individuals who have not been to Hahatanka State Park, that location, those caves, those coves, I use that term very specifically. It's an Appalachian term, not a cove that you sail your boat into. Although, thanks to Lake of the Ozarks, you could. But before then, no. And we're, we're talking about a, essentially, in, in other parts of the country, you might call it a canyon. You might call it a, a dead-end canyon, those types of things. These long, narrow hollers that are typically are very wooded. They're very shaded. Honestly, they're dark. They're mysterious. They're a good place to hide. They're also a good place if the if it's uh, if it's the wrong layout. Good place to get ambushed. But mm -hmm. then combined with the caves, that location is extremely resonant in energy. It's extremely resonant in 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 a sense of the very evocative sense of something in the past. So the idea. I've only been to Hahatanka a couple of times, but I love those coves. I love the the dark spaces and the 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 natural rock bridge and all of this. And so reading, doing the research now to find out that this extraordinary quote unquote bank of Niangua was taking place there. I'm going, okay. Now now some of the vibes are starting to make sense. Yeah. Oh, definitely, because we really don't know how many murders took place in that area and what all else happened, torture, etc. It really does fascinate me that because even the details about these events and the resulting slicker wars are very ephemeral. It's hard to find a lot of information, even though it was well known, actually. But basically, it started with John A.V. and his his gang at Hahatanka spread into Benton County and Polk County into what became the Slicker War. I have actually just found reference to Slickers in Barton County as well during the same time period. So and it spread there, out. There's there's some interesting confluence and intersection. This is, we actually have so much to cover, and we're really just first digging in, into some of it. There's so much information. This is actually going to be a part one, and we're going to go into the Slicker Wars in depth in our part two. Right. And which I'm excited about, and I love being able to split some of this up because it really allows us to dig intensely into certain areas. But uh, just to to finish my thought on the on the Hahatanka region, the Bank of Niangua, mm -hmm. a little bit of memory, a little bit of ancestral memory, a little bit of bits and pieces, the the counterfeiting, the the idea that they may have been making you know, pre sharing coinage that was marked with Spanish markings for for Mexican currency. Individuals might remember a bit of the the shaded coves. And the murders 
in the Haha Tonka area. They might remember a bit of the 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 Mexican currency, but not necessarily realize it was recently counterfeited Mexican currency, which gets transmuted into Spanish gold over time. Into Spanish gold, and there's just there's layers and layers. So I I tend to concur in terms of the potential and certainly the interest. I think that's a a really astute you know, analysis of what we might be looking at. And it's difficult to, especially at this early inception of Missouri history, the, the fact that, and the apparent spread and, and extent of this criminal syndicate, there's, there's, there's a lot of, obviously a lot of criminal tentacles, but also a lot of touch points in terms of later impact on the history and on the culture. Very much so. And even, even though a lot of this is almost lost to history, it is also of note that this was the largest counterfeiting operation in, in the entire nation during this time period. I, I love the duality. You have something that is so pervasive and such a large syndicate having nationwide effects, but it's virtually lost to memory. And it, and it, and it seems that apparently in the 1830s, they were dealing with some pretty shaky economic issues and situations. And mm-hmm. it was something that A.V., the Phantom of the Ozarks, was clearly taking advantage of. And the, the banks were the primary victims involved. They were. Well, there, there wasn't standard currency the way there is now. And so it was much easier to you didn't have a central banking system. So if they took in counterfeit money to a bank and it's changed it, they had real money and the bank is is left holding the bag to counterfeit money. And that's how they operated across the country. And so then it tur- started turning into murder because the bankers were getting upset. They're trying to force the politicians to do something. They actually do, the United States Marshal uh, in Jefferson City sent a posse out and they arrested some of the gang members. Some of them did go to prison, but it did not stop A.V. and he continued to counterfeit money. And of course, this is how his, the moniker Phantom of the Ozarks really, you know, I think became solidified is the fact that they would go out to to catch him and they couldn't find him. Right. And and again, I think in part, he had people who were protecting him, even though ultimately you had people who were kind of getting fed up with circumstances <laughs> and go after him. And that's ultimately what led to sort of sort of his demise. Not exactly, because we don't really know what happened to him. Right. And, and that, that, I think, is perhaps appropriately poetic. A, an interesting aspect of this financial exploitation. The state is very new, and there is actually, during the 1830s, there was a debate going on as to whether metal currency or paper currency or both were going to be accepted by the new state. And so this was the debate that was going on. 
folks for obvious reasons on the on the debate of soft currency, paper currency, like the idea because it's convenient. And then there was the stalwart who said, no, it needs to be gold and silver and paper currency is a bad idea. So this was a dramatic debate that was going on. And I find it really interesting because the Phantom of the Ozarks, Mr. Avey, responds by choosing both sides and, and essentially exploiting on both sides of this, this issue. Well, what good crime boss doesn't hedge his bets? <laughs> no, it, it definitely, he, he definitely seemed to be intelligent and be able to play the sides, but ultimately they were raided and they did find, they didn't find a lot, but eventually they did find the printing presses and the mint, many machines and so forth. But they really don't, they don't know what, what happened to AV, although it, it is interesting that research articles indicate that he basically kind of ultimately confessed and they think he was basically just exiled, but he, they didn't even put him in prison, although a number of his gang members ended up serving time in the then new penitentiary in Jefferson City. It is instead, AB just said, okay, just leave, leave town and, and we'll call it good. <laughs> and it is, it is fascinating to, to think that this, this happened. It has been largely lost to history, certainly lost to, in terms of uh, just everyday public awareness of the region. And here's this incredibly brilliant criminal pioneer settler. Those are, are words that one does not typically put together. And as would be appropriate of a phantom, his trail goes cold and he simply dissipates from the record. And I would, if I were to speculate wildly, perhaps not quite so wildly, somebody of this nature who is clearly extremely intelligent, extremely savvy, and saw the writing on the wall that he had he'd taken this particular gig as far as it could go, cashed in his chips, disappeared, changed his name, showed up someplace else, was very successful at not only eluding the law, but also ultimately history. And we may, we might have in reality, a phantom of the Ozarks disappearing from the Ozarks, showing up in say San Francisco or New Orleans and, or Chicago and in the 1840s or 1850s and capitalizing upon the, the skill set with completely different name and a different history. And nobody has any idea that's the same person. Exactly. And that did happen in the 1800s quite a bit. And we've discussed that before, too, is that a lot of people coming to the Ozarks were leaving a past that they didn't want to deal with for whatever reason. 
And there were those that we don't know what he did before he got to the Ozarks <laughs> for him to be that savvy. So he may have already done it before. And then it would catch up with them again and they get, move on. It's hard, I think, for people to conceptualize now how fluid society was then as far as being able to lose yourself. Correct. Correct. And not difficult to not leave a paper trail. Exactly. Or just completely reinvent yourself. Most people didn't even have birth certificates, much less driver's licenses and social security numbers and everything mm -hmm. else that follows us around today. You could just change your name and go on. <laughs> Amazing what happens with uh, an anonymous railroad ticket or a fast horse. Exactly. Exactly. This is a very, very fascinating segment of history that gave rise to other events that we'll talk about in a later episode with the Slicker War, but I just think it's very interesting that you can have such a syndicate going on in the middle of nowhere that is so pervasive that the whole nation is involved. It is. It really is. And and all of it again in a in a space approximately stretching between Lebanon, Missouri and Baja Tonka. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> not 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 to congratulate or glorify in any way, but that's very impressive that anyone could have done that, to be perfectly honest. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And I think we'll be we'll be referencing the Phantom of the Ozarks on a fairly regular basis from here on in. Yeah, I think he's kind of going on the list of notorious characters from the Dark Ozarks. Now, uh, speaking of some of the notorious activities, we have some some interesting information about what today is a, is a pretty relaxed small town of St. Robert. Yes. And, you know, it's not far from Fort Leonard Wood. No, no. And that's probably how all of this began. A lot of our content, uh, you know, our, our, our research tonight in this particular article is actually from crimemagazine.com. In a, the gratuitous title, The Sodom and Gomorrah of the Midwest. But, but not necessarily completely inaccurate either. <laughs> And what the, the spoiler alert on this is that with the development of Fort Leonard Wood and the number of soldiers who was coming and going there, that sex trade became a, a major part of the small town's economy for a period of time. Yes. And not just the sex trade, drug trafficking, gambling, and hitmen. Hitman. I mean, this is sort of taking John Avey and, and moving forward 140 years to the 1970s. Yeah, yeah, it is. And this is, and presumably a lot of this has, has changed today. I am not in a yeah. position to comment excessively on that one way or the other. And we're not throwing 
St. Robert under the under the bus. Um, no. In in regard, this is this is history from 50 years ago, and it's it is also especially in terms of noir history, it is really really fascinating. I'm going to speak just in generalities, not specifically talking about this particular case, but it it to me it is an interesting aspect when you look back over time we we associate the past with nostalgia sentimentality and a kinder gentler more moral past and history oftentimes disappoints us in that or if you're us we're excited about it uh, <laughs> and there, there's not disappointment that there, there's these various times. Now, the other aspect that I find really fascinating is small towns that in one way, shape or form are very quietly or under the radar dangerous. Very true, very true. And actually another example comes to mind that's even more recent than this. Over the last 20 years, it's not quite so much now, but West Plains, Missouri, also in the Ozarks, was one of the major white slavery hubs in the country. Wow. And, uh, and I, driving I, through West Plains, you would never suspect that. Yeah. And I think this is why, you know, on the subjects of missing persons, on the subject of, re of real life crime, subjects of these things that's one of the reasons why this these topics are so fascinating why they have such a large audience because it is there's a it's it's not dissimilar to the paranormal in the sense that there's something there but you can't see it true but an added factor that you don't even don't have in the with paranormal is you know that it's real you know that these you know these things have happened to people or that these real people are missing or part of the story is unknown or, or you know someone has been found murdered and you don't know who they are or what happened whereas it's always easy to say with a haunting or something oh that's not real or whatever and you don't have to consider the fact that, boy, these things are happening to real people. And if it happens to this person, could it happen to me? Yes. And those are, I mean, that's, that is, first of all, it's incredibly difficult, but it is very, very interesting. It, it I think the, the danger box gets ticked in the mind and it's, it really gets people's heightened interest. The, the, the situation, of course, from the crimemagazine.com article, which I found really interesting, when took us on a journey, an individual named Kathy, who was from North, Northeast Missouri, who had had some issues with drugs, et cetera, and was essentially kidnapped and held a prisoner and, and forced into prostitution in 1972. Yes. And these things still happen. It's, it's still a big problem. 
there are national task force on this as well as state task force and it's always easy to think oh those just thing, things happen along the border or they just those things happen in the big cities but actually a lot of times it's it is the small city, cities or towns like you said because it doesn't appear that there's anything going on or they're off the radar and so these kinds of crimes can be longer in those areas and and St. Robert was one of those and and I think it was a culmination of the factors of being a small town being along the highway I-44 as well as being close to the army base it was sort of convergence of factors that led to a lot of these events including basically turf wars between pimps and organized crime being involved gambling which and, i think as well as the the co-opting of portions of the government yes yes we we talked about hot springs in our last episode and hot springs is notorious for for its corruption and looking the other way for vice and organized crime and Basically, this is a similar example, but on a very small city scale. Mm -hmm. It is. And really, again, it's, it's one of those things that I think it's hard to associate this with small towns in America, even though it very much happened. And as you noted, it continues to happen. Mm -hmm. It's easier for me to associate it because of my career, but. Right, right. I was, I was speaking in generalities, not, yeah. not something <laughs> in the judicial system, judicial uh, for their entire career. Lawyers are the outlier there. People <laughs> in the justice system are the outliers there. The, it, uh, it reminds me growing up in Chillicothe, which, you know, I associate my hometown in Illinois with the river, the IGA store, the dime store, those types of things. And the first time somebody was like, yeah, in the, in the 1920s, that building, uh, which is a mansion. Uh, and I'm like, yeah, I know that building. Yeah, it was a brothel. I'm like, wait, what? Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah. Lots of those places. Um, as, as, as an individual who has, you know, you, you've been uh, an attorney for, for your career and mm -hmm. so have consequently seen many aspects, quite frankly, aspects of Ozark culture that do not make it into the, uh, land of a million smiles brochure. Yeah, no, it's not, not on the postcards. <laughs> and that is one of the things that I think is, is, um, is interesting. I think it's one of the things we we both appreciate about Vance Randolph's work from the 30s and 40s, is that he was not afraid to touch on certainly demographics and aspects of the the more uncomfortable elements then of the Ozarks culture. What are some of your some of the things that you just find particularly important? about understanding, you know, taking the rose-colored glasses off and looking at 
the the darker sides of Ozark's culture. Oh, and in as far as the, these kind of examples, I think it's easy. Everyone can have that tendency to have the rose-colored glasses and and say nothing happens here. Bad problems happen somewhere else, whether it's the big city, you know, at the edge of the state or in another state, even bigger city. But people are people everywhere. Mm-hmm. And on some degree, you're going to have, you're going to have vice, you're going to have crimes of passion, you're going to have whatever noir topic you want to talk about can happen anywhere because people are people yes and in a weird sort of way i find that comforting in in the fact that the the dark side of human nature also brings up the fact that people are somewhat predictable in our in our nature and also the fact that these types of things have gone on ever since history has been recorded and before mm-hmm. and yet somehow we have haltingly and you know in spits and spurts gotten to this point anyway and have a relatively functional society that it's the it's the sense when we are presented with quote-unquote horrifying information and it may be certainly in the microcosm for an individual it may be genuinely horrifying and i'm not saying oh, yeah. it away from those experiences but oftentimes it's easy uh to over moralize take on a sky is falling sort of position i can't believe that this is happening we must do a thing that's interesting you weren't you weren't terribly concerned about it in 1973 in fact, you didn't even know it existed. We, you know, moved on from those points. And there have been those juncture points throughout history. So the idea that uh, obviously we do not want to diminish the experiences that these individuals are having or have had, but at the same time to understand that the fact that they occur does not mean that the apocalypse is happening tomorrow. That's true. But on the other hand, and here's an example came to mind while you were talking, you don't always know when you are close to that element activities. Most people aren't anyway. Right. I, I, I recall right out of law school, my first job, criminal defense work, boss walks me down to, we were going down to jail to interview a, a client, sit down in the interview room and interview the, the client. They take the client back to cell. Boss turns to me and, and he smiles and says, so how's it feel? You just, you, you just sat in a room with a uh, serial rapist. He was not charged with rape that on on this case. Wow. And and they decided not to tell me that ahead of time. And it was like, and I and I looked at him and I said, "Well, you were there. There's a deputy at the door. You deal with it." Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. But that's the thing is knowing that these things go on, even if you don't see them out in the open, is a is a I guess a reality that most people don't come to. True. <clears throat> True. And I I find I find this type of thing really, really interesting for me. I with my work with State of the Ozarks and developing the member community and the stories that we do on State of the Ozarks is largely as a counter to say the you know dateline NBC. Oh my gosh, the person across the living across from you in the neighborhood is probably an axe murderer. Initiate paranoia level 10 now, mm -hmm. uh, at least to get you through the commercial break and make you want to, you know, buy some diet Mountain Dew. And a, a great deal of our media with State of the Ozarks has been to encourage people to get to know one another. And I appreciate the, for example, the hidden craftsmanship or the the artist across the, you know, on the block that you don't know about, those types of things. So very homey and and I think important. But the other side of that is that there is a dark side to human nature and it exists typically in plain sight with plain clothes and you don't know it until you know it. Exactly. And then then sometimes you are better at seeing the, the hints and clues. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Which is not a bad thing, just for the record. No, no, I, uh, I'm debating whether to tell a story about gas station being paced. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> I enjoy this story. I enjoy this story. <laughs> Friend of mine who's also an attorney, I think maybe that's the clue, stopped at a gas station after actually a book signing event some years ago and walk in its convenience store, get something to drink. And as we get out of the car, you see there's a car parked at the edge of the parking lot running, lights off for guys in, the, in, the, in it, all in hoodies, hoods up. The weather's a little warm, go, okay. We walk in. She walks over to, I think, to the the drink cooler. I think I walk over to get a candy bar or something. Three of them walk in. One stays in the car. They spread out. And it takes about 20 seconds, conscious of where they're going. And I look over. And at the same time, we both nod to the door. Time to leave. While the three clerks in the store are saying they're absolutely oblivious to the fact that they are obviously casing it to see if they're going to rob it. <laughs> mm -hmm. oh, yeah. It's uh, pattern recognition counts. Yes. Of course, this is also the same attorney friend who one, one thing she will say is, you know, there are places that we go as, as attorneys that women disappear from, so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, uh, and uh, it, uh, it counts to uh, be aware. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. 
and in St. Robert in the 1970s, you would have wanted to be well aware of what was going on around you, it appears. Right. Absolutely. So it is, well, and also the, its proximity to I-44, I think, is particularly fascinating. And I'm sure when the unveiling of the, of the Eisenhower interstate system was, was done, nobody was thinking of it in terms of how efficient it would make human trafficking. Well, and, and to be fair, it was not any more efficient really than it was as Route 66 or, or the trails before. It, it always had been there. I mean, commonly I-44 I is known as the mule road because contraband runs up and down it all the time. And before it was I-44, contraband ran up and down Route 66. And before that it was the wire road and the Indian trails. Yeah. It's common enough that, that the Missouri Supreme Court has noted in court cases that it's a, it's a common, common knowledge. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Which again is, is something that a lot of everyday people do not think about. They do not think about it when they're on Highway 65. They don't think about it when they're on I-44. Mm -hmm. um, it's uh, you know, something that I was, I was not that specifically, but something that fortunately I was raised with was a, a mother who was extremely aware of potential threats in places like rest stops mm -hmm. and the idea that you know a rest stop on i-75 or i-44 is not a place to be oblivious no not at all for the record i was raised by a mother like that as well so. <laughs> <laughs> traveling sort of you know doing things like wandering around obliviously or ambling toward the restroom at the rest stop while looking in their purse yeah and these types of things and my mom just going no <laughs> no you do not the the doors on the vehicle remain locked until you are ready to go out as soon as you get out, your head is up, you are aware, you are work, walking with purpose, you are watching everything around you, you are watching the doors, you are watching the shadows, you are watching the shrubbery, and we are not going to be casual about this. No. <laughs> That's exactly how I was raised as well. <laughs> on, the, on the way in, while you are there, and on the way out. It seems that eventually that's kind of what happened in St. Robert's. People heads went up and lots yeah. of law enforcement got involved. Yes, yes. And, uh, and ultimately changed things from all of the documentation. Yes, yes. And I think that it's, you know, it really, you know, there's definitely two sides to all of these things, many more sides in many cases, but the fact that that what could seem like oh it's you know soldiers on soldiers on leave 
folks just wanting to have a good time, not a big deal, that this escalated over, over the course of time to some really, really dark aspects of criminality. Yes. Murder, bombings, hits being put out on people, but ultimately law enforcement cracking down on it and and that being eliminated. But it does yeah. go it just goes to show that these things can happen in the most unlikely or seemingly unlikely places. Right. Right. <laughs> so travel cautiously. That's our that's our momentary takeaway from this. At least keep your eyes open. Now <laughs> jumping jumping subjects rather drastically is we have a couple of cases of giants in the Ozarks in the Lake of the Ozarks region. Yes. I have to say I, I love these stories. And you know I always I, loved it. I, I love these stories wherever you find them. Most of them are very vague and flourish almost to relegated to myth. But these are two examples that are fairly well documented, which make them rather unique. They are. They are surprisingly well documented. I need to check on my puppy for just a moment. Okay. Uh, would you share with the readers about uh, the crane case? Okay. I sure can. We are going back to 1934, and this is an area that's about 40 miles north of the Lake of the Ozarks. J.D. Crane built a house on his property and decided that a burial man that was on his property was in his, blocking his view. There were some large oak trees on top of the mound. He cuts them down and then decides to cut down the mound, which unfortunately happened and it's easy to to cast stones at people in the past for doing these things but again you, you do have to look at the context of the time they weren't always thought of as even being burial mounds at that time but he found in removing the dirt that he got down to some flat rocks moved the rocks out and found seven skeletons Six of them were average, normal size, but one was eight feet, four inches in height. There were no valuables found with them, but there were seven pieces of uh, petrified material or hard material that appeared to be in the shape of human hearts. Now, eventually he and his neighbors dug a hole near his front porch and placed the bones in a box and reburied them so that, that they were reinterred. Unfortunately, the house is gone and we don't know exactly where the front porch is and they haven't rediscovered the bones, but they were, they were well documented. And including, I believe, some archive information about them with the Secretary of State's office. Another interesting thing is that archaeologists has made, you know, initial 
opinion that it probably was not a hoax and that the hardened or petrified items were probably actually stone tools. So and the thing that I find really, really interesting is this confluence of burial mound, mm -hmm. essentially a sacred site, uh, also associated with an individual of comparatively great height. Yes. And the fact that it was interred with six other skeletons too, which makes it to me less likely to be a hoax. Mm -hmm. Yes. You know, like down man or whatever, usually, you know, one skeleton, you know, one set of remains found isolated. This appears to have been a larger burial area. So there's for me personally there's just there's a very interesting resonance because it age estimates from 1934 put the oak trees at approximately 100 years or older which is fine yeah. but there's certainly some decent suggestion that the burial mounds themselves are much older than the oaks well yes and in, and in particular that the the graves would have been would have predated that because they were apparently under a considerable amount of dirt and then had the flat stones on top of them and the trees grew up later. So, which is very consistent. There were a lot of mounds in, in, the, in the regions and some of them had graves in them, some of them did not, so. Right, I'm on a, certainly his cultural and historical note, but for me, even on a paranormal note, and then we don't have any paranormal associations with the documentation on this particular case. No. But yes, and I'm really, really fascinated by the association of energy and the association of paranormal activity around or affiliated with the sacred site mounds. I am too, and of course we have a, a, a private investigation site that, that we've worked with that is just adjacent to a mound that was cleared in the 1970s. And so with a lot of activity on the property and some of it may be related to the mound or not, it's hard to know. It is what? are your thoughts? I know we've talked about this peripherally, but, and just your, your overall impression or intuition, first of all, in regards to existent mounds, but then also in regards to locations that have had a mound destroyed. I, I think that particularly mounds that may have had ceremonial aspects, ritual aspects, long-term, ongoing. I, I think there tends to be more lore of different activity going on, or at least things like lights being seen or animals acting oddly around them, that kind of thing. I think a man that is just a grave may or may not 
have activity, mm -hmm. kind of like a cemetery. To me, it seems where I've heard the most kind of stories are areas that they think rituals were performed at over time. And I think that I think it's that energy, whether you want to say it's spiritual, you know, the, the spiritual energy from interacting with the supernatural or the, just the energy put into the space by people, either way, I think leaves an impression. Yes. Yeah. I, and I think that and, and 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 realistically, it may be some of both. Agreed. Agreed. And, and I think in a lot of those situations, it's kind of hard to know where, where one aspect one aspect or the other ends and the other begins. I think there's a lot of overlap between the two often. It's, it's hard to figure out the yin and yang there. Now, ones that have been disturbed, I think, I think that can cause problems if there's been a grave there and it's disturbed, almost as if there tends to be a higher correlation with activity around an unmarked grave. Mm. And again, I think it's the energy of person or persons buried there, whether they are settled or not. I think it's subjective for the people who have passed on, if that makes sense. It does. And it also brings up a sense, and I think it's an important thing for people to consider if they're doing research and they're doing paranormal investigations, is that spiritual activity is energy. Mm -hmm. It is, it, in it, it may be very assertive energy. It may be very quiet energy. It may be energy that because of its assertiveness or because of its past, et cetera, we may translate as negative. But at the end of the day, it's, it's energy. And we really think of the paranormal as the other. And it certainly it is from an aspect that it's oftentimes unknown, difficult to quantify, those types of things. But we share a similarity. We share a kinship with a great deal of this activity that could make us uncomfortable, could make us question our ideas of mortality in interesting and existential ways that we'd rather not in many cases. And that comes down to a point, very sharp point with investigations, because it is the reality that not only are we attempting to document the energy within a space, but by we ourselves conducting the investigation, we're bringing our own energies into the space and maybe muddying the waters in essence. I think that can happen at times. I do. And that's, I, I hate using the word mindful because I think mindful and mindfulness is, is an overused term right now. But it is true that being mindful of your own state of emotions and state of mind while you investigate is very important because otherwise it can be like throwing darts at a dartboard. <laughs> oh, now speaking of locations that is like throwing darts at a dartboard, 
in the Steelville, Missouri area, we have another documented giant. Yes, and this is this is really interesting because it's even more documented than the crane case, although a little bit different setting. It is. We're we're specifically dealing with Puckett's Cave. It's on the Merrimack River, and there is a lot of genuine documentation on this. There was a reality TV show episode that actually dealt with this in terms of searching mm -hmm. it and, and predominantly with the, the the cryptozoology aspect what was found and what is also in the the articles associated with the, the steel bill giant is that there was the remains of a, of a giant that was exhumed from Puckett's cave in 1933 Yes, very, you know, almost the same time within a year of, of the other situation, but separated by some distance and circumstances. 16 year old boy ends up finding the bones in the cave, thinking it's a recent death. He gets help. People retrieve the bones and then take them to Dr. Parker in town in Steelville, who basically examines the remains and determines that this is a being of over seven and a half feet. And of course, no cartilage. And so the doctor concludes that, that the uh, man must have been close to eight foot tall in life. So again, similar stature as the other finding. Right. Uh, and and the the location in the cave isn't conclusive, but it does suggest uh, an aspect of sacred space burial. Yes, yes, something it, it suggests that it, it was definitely done on purpose and with care, and and not just an accidental death or something like that. Um, the other the other thing that was noted, and this is this is not unusual in the case of many comparatively accessible caves in the Ozarks is that there was a lot of evidence of them being used by humans in a, in a pre-Columbian era and that it, that it evidenced with pottery shards, ash from campfires, those types of things. So, and, and Puckett's cave was, was no exception to that. There was, there was a number of evidences of, of ancient human use of the cave and that is particularly fascinating in terms of this larger than life, quote unquote, skeleton being located. And it does bring up the question, you know, as a as a as a location, there is the possibility that this this individual was killed in the in the area for one reason or another, or it the possibility the, the possibility that it is a sacred burial site. Both, you know, and all of that is is currently largely conjecture. Now, the biggest issue with this is the the documentation definitely was you know, newspaper documentation of the discovery of the skeleton. A local doctor in Steelville, who was was well regarded in terms of from what we can tell, studied the remains and ultimately ended up 
contacting Washington, D.C. and carefully packing the remains up and shipping them to Washington, D.C., whereupon they were lost. Yes, which is not an isolated situation of these stories of clear across the country of, of finding of stories that such findings were made, they were sent to the Smithsonian and then never heard about again. And we do know that, and actually based on litigation, that the Smithsonian under a director during the early 1900s had a concerted policy of 69ing any artifacts that would indicate there were larger than normal beings in North America in the past. So there's just, it's just hard to know. But because of that fact and a reliance on the institution, evidence is, is, is lost, whatever evidence there would have been. And it certainly could have just been an aberration, someone with pituitary land condition that created extra growth. But on the other hand, if you want to go to the lower side, there are a number of Native American tribes through the Great Lakes and the Plains that all had very similar legends of races of giants, particularly giants with red hair and white skin. Yes, which adds such an interesting aspect of our quote-unquote pseudo-history. And this this entire field of research is incredibly fascinating to me because there's a strong resonance and in some cases comparatively very strong evidence to say that the, the pastiche of accepted history particularly Neolithic history, is just that. It is a, it is a pastiche. It is a, a marketable shadow. And that there is, would caution people to simply throw all of that away. But at the same time, I would also caution individuals who accept that structural narrative, which is quite simplistic in comparison, as the only possible facet of narrative to be also very simplistic. Exactly. You know, and and not, you know, not advocating one view or the other, any particular view, just that there are a lot of possibilities that institutional bias has relegated to the trash heap over the last 150 years. Yes. And, uh, so it, it really is hard to know because on the one hand, as a layperson, you're expected to look at the experts for cues. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, researchers, if they if they come across something that doesn't fit into the established narrative, there there is a lot of pressure not to publish that for risk of your career. Yeah. And, and there's, there's that push and pull that in essence makes debate hard to be had. 
It does. It does. It's uh, you know a surprisingly primitive social dialectic that individuals find themselves stuck in, mm-hmm. and their their either their career security or simply their layperson headspace. Neither one allows for the possibility of documentably getting out of whatever particular channel they're in. Exactly, and and. And there's a, there is a lot uh, of pressure there when it comes to the idea of pre-Columbian culture in North America. Yes, yes. And, and while, while the pressure for a particular narrative has shifted drastically over the last, say, 120 years, the pressure to have a narrative has not changed. No, it's just... It is, what is the paradigm? <laughs> right. I'm just I'm just going to chug some espresso and go four square into the 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 camp of ancient Neolithic North American cannibalistic giants. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> At this point, it's it's. I, I think that I think folks would be disappointed in me if I didn't. I did <laughs> with with the, with the article in question did, that is actually on richweb.com. Could there still be uh, an ancient giant dug up near Stillville, Missouri? The the article references a field explorer Falk, who is associated with the Smithsonian Institution. Mm-hmm. saying, quote, one of his most astonishing discoveries was evidence that these Aborigines, and we're not talking about giants, right. we're talking about cave dwellers, and that the cave dwellers were cannibals for along with the bones of animals, which they had used for food. He also found human bones, which had been cracked for the extraction of the marrow that they contained, and these people, he believed, lived at least a thousand years old, uh, years ago. And again, referencing the the fact that that some some of the lore some of the legends you know looking into for example lakota or osage or caddo legends of earlier peoples which oftentimes are associated with the supernatural mm-hmm. uh, the the stories of giants the stories of uh, of man eating demons these types of things wendigo wendigo is a good uh, example. 100%. You you think about the fact that that Wendigo legend may actually have arisen from oral tradition of say the northern Lakota peoples in the Great Lakes region having encountered or being beset upon by an earlier neolithic people who were cannibals. That's right or even if it, even if not culturally cannibalistic resorting to it in dire circumstances just like the Donner party mm-hmm. yeah in the 1840s it is fascinating and what to me it highlights is how important it is not to discount traditional folklore i i agree i think that often there is some grain of truth well and another example of that even with the subject of cannibalism is Hansel and Gretel. Yes. 
it comes is. from the great famine of 1315 and where people did resort to eating their children in Bavaria. And, you know, something that I'm, I'm disclaimer, I'm fixing to go on a rant. Many times I've been exposed to the, the story of how oral tradition cultures cannot be trusted with the very simplistic example and, and oftentimes an example that public education actually inflicts upon their students, which is all the children sit around in a circle and one child is given the uh, something to whisper in the other child's ear and 15 children later, it has been so corrupted that everyone has a terrible laugh about how impossible it is without written language to right. preserve anything. And to me, that is, first of all, very primitive in terms of its analysis. And second of all, it does a great disservice to our understanding of the possibilities and the capacity for humanity. We, despite all of our technology, are actually a very primitive form of humanity. We rely upon our technology. We rely upon accepted knowledge, which may or may not be correct. And you don't have to dig very deeply to realize that oral cultures were extraordinarily sophisticated and they could not have gotten to that level of sophistication, say for their understanding of the stars, their ability to navigate, their ability to traverse great, great spaces, their ability to establish extraordinarily complex trade routes over several thousand years, their ability to, in some cases, create amazing, incredible structures that also, in many cases, as the Neolithic sites of Great Britain indicate, are not only incredibly sophisticated, but are also in alignment with many aspects of the celestial calendar. We see the same thing with Cahokiet. We see the same thing with the Mayan structures in, in Guatemala and the Yucatan. And to me, it, it really points to the fact that, first of all, we're not nearly as smart as we think we are. Second of all, humanity is capable of incredible things, uh, the likes of which we seem to be scarcely aware. Agreed. And another fact with the telephone game that it's a good illustration of how things can be misheard or changed. But on the other hand, it's usually done in that example with children however oral-based societies when they were transmitting knowledge from one to another from one generation to the other often it, certain individuals were selected to basically memorize all of this information and it was not the five-year-old ch child doing it. It was someone who was looking at this very seriously, very taking it very seriously as as their profession, if you want, if you would say. So, yes. it, it, it it's saying because five-year-olds mishear things and change it through the telephone game, seen in a circle that someone 
at the most serious level of higher education would do the exact same thing. Right, and that is a, an infantile extrapolation. Agreed, agreed. <laughs> now, moving from our giants and our Neolithic burial mounds to lost burial sites from a much later era, yes. we have we have an issue that, that takes place with these lake impoundments. And that is that not in all cases are, are all the graves accounted for before the man-made lake is completed. True, and sometimes it's a matter that the lake fills more quickly than anticipated and they've run out of time to move things as well. Which, which definitely happened down here, 1958-59, with the building of Table Rock Dam. Mm -hmm. Now, in, with Lake of the Ozarks, this may very well have happened as well. Bagnell Dam was developed between 1929 and 1931. Right. And there was considerable effort, and my hat's off to Union Electric, the company that, that built the dam, that there was an effort to remove human remains from known cemeteries if it was below the projected shoreline of the upcoming Lake of the Ozarks. Yes, it, there, it was not intended to leave them. There got an official count listing 60 cemeteries that were going to be inundated, dealing with approximately 2,800 individual graves but only 1,100 of the burial sites were identified with tombstones. So those were the ones that they, they moved. And then they did, they did rely on word of mouth for other burial places. But if Nest of Cannon moved away and no one, no one was left to point out a grave, then of course they couldn't find it. So there are potentially 1600 roughly graves that could still be under the lake right and those and that's just based on the the analyses numbers of known cemeteries with known grave plots right and of course in in early days not only of settlement but even before settlement for indigenous people often there there weren't any markers so I think maybe a disconcerting thought for a lot of people is that there could be there could be graves in a lot of places that we don't anticipate, regardless of whether or not they've been inundated with water. Yes, and and of course, <laughs> they we're, we're no, there, there's there's a number of things associated with this. The biggest concern, I think, in terms of paranormal aspect that that people really that messes with them is the idea of the, the, the vengeful spirit lost between the water, beneath the waters and, you know, seeking revenge. And the fact that Lake of the Ozarks is a massive lake. It is prone at times to really difficult negative weather mm -hmm. and weather pattern. And it's also a party lake. Yeah. Um, very much so. Most lakes definitely have a, 
a party-like aspect associated with them. Lake of the Ozarks is definitely known for its party-like aspect. And so consequently, there are incidences that occur on the lake. And for, for individuals who are of this mindset, and here I am interjecting my own energy into this because just think of all the people who didn't think about this until I said it, is that something bad happens on the lake and then you begin associating it with the possibility of a vengeful spirit beneath the waters. True. And it could be something completely unrelated or just something that has happened very recently. Uh, another point that is made in the research, which is very is valid, is that at the time of the impoundment, there were a lot of the old timers who said it really didn't matter if you found the older graves or not. And it's a very practical basis because the older graves were unembalmed. Mm -hmm. They were buried in wooden caskets. They've been there 50 years or more. There probably wasn't much left anyway. Right. Which is the a very practical way to look at it and the can the counterpoint to our disturbed or forgotten graves a source of a haunting. Right. Right. And you know, along with that, I thought there's some interesting aspects, the fact that in most cases the the caskets or the, the remains were moved under the cover of darkness, quote, but the reason for the nighttime move was more courteous than ominous. Union Electric wanted to spare families the emotional difficulty of actually seeing the relocation. And I respect that. I mean, that's something that in a lot of ways, it seems like more care and thought was put into, into it than is given credit generally, because you hear all these stories about, oh, there's all these, there's so many graves that are buried there that they actually seem to have tried to implement this plan in a very respectful way. Agreed. That you don't typically think about, even more so when, when you think that this is in the early 30s, this is still barely past the time that it was very routine to move a cemetery or move the headstones and then build on top of the cemetery that the idea of a grave in perpetuity really was not fixed in the in in the mind until sometime in the 20th century anyway very very true so it is it is there's a lot of sociocultural aspects with this sort of a, a historical narrative in terms of individuals emotional response with the graves and that aspect another thing that i thought was was interesting was that the workers doing the reinterments were quote quarantined for the entire process which took two years for fears that some of the graves might still be carrying the diseases like smallpox or cholera well and particularly pre-involvement that that's a valid concern i mean they've had um circumstances where they've come across graves from the from medieval times where they found bacteria 
Mm. That was that was live from smallpox or even plague, etc. That could be hazardous. So it sounds like a very thought out plan. And so, something that comes to mind for, to me with this is, and probably not a popular thought, but I'm not sure that be you know being inundated would technically disturb the grave interesting interesting i like that what what are your thoughts in that regard to me it's is it different than a natural say creek flooding and overflowing or something a disturbed grave because there's water over it now or is it a disturbed grave because we perceive it as that because we aren't walking the cemetery. <laughs> That's a very good point. Maybe we're the ones that are disturbed, not the graves. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's, I think that is quite fair. And, but I do think that it's also fair that a number of families would be disturbed by the fact oh. Granted, and I and I, and that's my point. I think it's 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 more an issue for the living than the dead. Yes. Yes. Whereas, I... whereas typically we we view a disturbed grave causing a disturbance or haunting, mm -hmm. being a source of the deceased being disturbed by it. Right. Right. As opposed to the fact that the deceased may very realistically not care, but uh, right, but right, and in this situation, I think it, it's more the living being disturbed. That goes back to what's the source of the haunting and what energy affecting energy. So, do we create a haunting? Can we create a haunting because we feel disturbed by it versus someone that's passed? It is possible. It's very fascinating. These existential aspects of of research and uh, and analyses, I think, are are part of the fun. I agree. I I agree. And food for thought, I guess. It is. It is. And we will we will revisit and expand on like those arts lore in a future episode, but. In between, don't forget to check out upcoming events and merchandise at darkosarts.com and paranormalsciencelab.com. Thank you again to Always Buying Books and Beard Engine Brewing Company for helping to bring the Darkos Arts to everyone. On the next episode, we are going to be discussing the most iconic haunted mansions in the Ozarks. Catch the Dark Ozarks podcast on Branson Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or about any other podcast platform. Thank you, everyone. And remember, there are no easy answers in the Dark Ozarks.